Good morning, good afternoon, good night, whatever time of day you're watching this, or time of night. I don't know the lingo, but I have six topics. Yes, six topics. Once again, I was going to have seven. But I was like, nah, let me keep it at six. I'm vast me for another day where I go big. But six topics today. I'm keeping it consistent. Six topics rather than the four topics I was doing last year. New year, new decade, new podcast. So six topics for today. Yeah, six. Make sure I got that right. And I mean, it started off an amazing weekend. We had Conor McGregor winning, which I'll get to. Um, I had, we, we had you know conference championships. Those were pretty entertaining, except for the Green Bay and San Francisco one. That was you know entertaining to start off with, but then it was like, yeah, it was kind of over. But I'm gonna talk about those also. And then we had some new hires. Um. In the, in the NFL, one one of them I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to, uh, just because I'm not sure how I feel so much about it, and I want to wait for you know the rest of free agency mainly to, to kind of wrap up or get or get started actually because it hasn't even started, or maybe the NFL draft actually. Um, but then I have another basketball team I want to talk about. It seemed like that was pretty cool. Uh, last time we talked about the Milwaukee Bucks and the Oklahoma City Thunder and Giannis and Shea Gilgis Alexander. Now I'm gonna be talking about. The Hawks, that's for later on. And also the NBA All-Star voting, which finalized tonight. Um, or actually, Martin Luther King Day got finalized. And now it's being uh, broadcasted tonight as I'm recording. But when this goes up, probably, I think it's the night before. So that should be awesome. And, look forward, and I'm looking forward to it. And I have uh, a topic about it. Just briefly. Just briefly talking about it, but let's jump right into my first topic, which is Redemption Weekend, which is just wrapping up everything that happened this weekend that I found amazing. So, let's start off. It was Redemption Weekend in the NFL in Conor McGregor at UFC 246. But let's first start in the NFL. Andy Reid finally got past what was haunting him. In the conference championships and now into the Super Bowl. I however, am of the belief that this was the year, no matter what, as soon as they got into the playoffs, I was like, even if the Patriots win, the Chiefs got this just by the way that they were looking going into it, that they were you know, a lot more confident. They just look better, and I didn't really believe too much in the Ravens. Even if they beat the Titans, I didn't think that they were going to beat the Chiefs. But, you know, you can call me out and say, oh, the Titans at 2020, but I know that. It's true, and that I, you know, had had the Chiefs going all the way. Um, so I found that amazing. I, I found it amazing that he overcame that. And I mean, like you, you might have saw the video of him in the locker room and him coming around and just like celebrating. It was really cool. He was really happy to finally get over that hurdle and get in, into the Super Bowl after just being in the conference championship um, modem for so long. Or or purgatory, I guess, for so long. And on the NFC side, so we have on the AFC, we have Andy Reid getting to the Super Bowl. On the NFC side, we have Kyle Shanahan. I almost butchered his name. Kyle Shanahan, where he learned from his Super Bowl 51 mistake uh, of, you know, just not running off the clock and just not playing his style of game for the Falcons. And and, and obviously, he didn't blow the lead for, for the Niners. So it was a 20. 7 to 0 lead, which is a bit hard to blow than a 25 zip lead. But again, it's it, it was amazing to to see him learn from 
learn from his mistakes, and to see the storyline continue. Now, for UFC 246, this was the real redemption uh, of the weekend, the big one. Conor McGregor against Donald Cerrone in UFC 246. And I had Conor McGregor, uh, Conor McGregor winning this, mainly because I was just rooting for him. I wanted him to win. And I thought that he's... I, I find him personally just really, really funny, the way that he acts. I find him really interesting. And I, I was rooting for him. I had him winning. But I never would have seen this coming a 40-second knockout. I don't think... It would be ridiculous to see that coming. But... Um... I mean, it, it was just cool. I'm not an expert on the UFC. I'm not an expert in MMA. I do Taekwondo, but, I mean, that's nowhere close to the physicality and, you know, the punishment on the body as the MMA in the UFC. But that's why I'm focusing on the storyline. Um, just because I don't know UFC does not mean that I can't focus on what this guy has been through. So, I mean... This guy, Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor, has been out of professional fighting in the UFC for pretty much a year. I've done Taekwondo. If I was out for a year, I, I, I don't know if I could do a lot of the things that I, I was once able to do. Um, so I found it amazing that he was able to you know hang in there or even have the confidence to go back into the ring and say, you know what, I, I, I can do this. Um, but then on top of that, I think, I'm not sure if it was before or afterwards, I, th I think it was before, he admitted to, um, having drunk, be having been drinking before the, the uh, Khabib fight, where he lost, obviously, and, and from then on, uh, well, not from then on, but, um, from October leading up to this fight, he had been sober in, pre in preparation for it and did not give himself any leeway. And he also Im admitted to, um, be before some of his previous fights, where he like you know do a little boxing match uh, or or fighting uh, with his with with whoever, and then he just disappear a, uh, a couple to three nights before the actual fight and just do nothing, like not take care of himself. And to see that he's um, reflected on that, and it produced. What we saw for 40 seconds of domination, uh, I, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. And, and and even when he won, usually you see him, like, running out of the cage, jumping over the fence, and, like, you know, celebrating, going crazy, riling up, his, riling up his fans. But I found it even more amazing. Not, not necessarily the physicality and how great he was in that fight, but how he acted after he won, where it was so uh, humble. He acted with a lot of humility. He, you know, was kneeling. He, he, he was, like, shocked. He was like, I'm, I won. I did it. I, I came all this way. I did all this hard work, and it paid off. I was out for a year, and now I'm back. And he's ready to go. And after that fight, he he checked on uh, Donald Cerrone, and he was like, making sure he's okay, and you know, he even gave him a little kiss on the head. But he kneeled beside him and you know, embraced him, hugged him, as it was like, not so much a thank you or an arrogant way, but like, as in like, as, as in like, just a moment of just togetherness, I guess, where only Conor McGregor can really describe it, I guess. But I don't think it was arrogant, I think it was just humble, where he was just grounded and was like, oh my goodness, this is, like, this feels really, really good. I think that's what was going on in his head, and he was just, I, I just found it amazing that he was 
you know, on the verge of tears, practically. And then you hugged Donald around, and it was just an act of humility, I'm pretty sure. That, that, that's the way I view it. And so, the, to me, Conor McGregor's the guy that has reflected on himself, on his past, on his fighting, and changed his bad habits for the better. And it seems that he's, for now, in a good place. And to me, that's inspirational. Now, so that was Redemption Weekend. Now I'm going to go on to um, talking about football a bit, the championships, conference championships. And I'm going to start off with the um, the one that was a blowout. Well, actually both were. But the one that was more of pure domination from start to finish. And that is San Francisco against Green Bay. The Niners against the Packers. Aaron Rodgers being drafted by the Packers. And being like, oh, you know, the Niners made a mistake and passed up on me. I'm going to make them regret it. I'm going to get my revenge. And it was a huge storyline. And then we get this. So, uh, how do I start? Well, this segment is going to be as quick as that game. It's going to be just a masterpiece and then boom, done. So, the Niners beat the Packers by 17 points, 37 to 20. And in my video, uh, in, in my segment, uh, I think last week, yeah, last week, Going into this game, I said the Packers need to establish the run immediately, early. That way they can open up the passing game. And then ultimately, they cannot commit turnovers because San Francisco will cash in on those. Green Bay did the same thing, I think I think it was week 12, uh, against the Niners, where they just committed fumbles. And I'm not sure if there's an interception, but just fumbles. And it was, I mean, it got the Niners going offensively. And they really fed off that rather than, you know, going downfield and scoring by themselves. And so that's, th those are the two things I asked for the offense of the Packers, you know, establish the run early and don't commit turnovers. The defense, I was like, you know, just, just hope for the best at that point. And at the start, they kind of did that first one, establishing the run, they kind of did that. And, and, and maybe if they complete some of those promising uh, drives, I think uh, the second drive. No, no, no the first drive. The, the first drive went all the way up to, I believe, the 50-yard line. And then they got to fourth and one, and they had to punt it. If if that drive gets a first down instead of having to punt it, who knows how this game plays out because they get the points first. So maybe if they you know finish off a couple possessions... Finish up a couple of promising drives to get deep, such as the one I'm gonna get to later on, where they got all the way to the 25 yard line of the Niners. Maybe they don't get slapped like, like, like they did. They don't get slapped by 17 points. But as soon as Aaron Jones started going off, he had 49 yards on nine carries in that first half, and he only had 12 carries, 12 for the whole game, so only three carries at the end. But a lot of that had to do with you know we're down 27 zip, so yeah, we kind of get gotta start passing a lot more. But as soon as he started getting, as soon as he started uh, going off on that drive where 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 they got all the way to the twenty five yard line, like I was saying, of the Niners, he had an eleven yard carry, seven yards, four yards, five yards, all in a row. That's a good amount against that Niners front seven. That that's pretty good. And they're deep in the Forty Nine ers territory uh, on the twenty five yard line, and then the center miss snaps the ball. It doesn't even make it to Aaron Rodgers' hands. It just, I mean. The center completely messed it up, where he tried to bring it up, but he ended up hitting himself in the butt, and 
it was a fumble, and it was the game switched like that. I think at that point it was 17-zip. If, if they score a touchdown, 17-7, you know, the, there's a bit of light. There's a bit of light, a bit of momentum goes, starts going their way, but they fumble it, and it was never the same after that. It, was, it just sucked the life out of them at that point. And as soon as that happened, you were like, it's over. That, that's as far as they're getting. Although they score, you know, 20 points afterwards. At that point, you're like, no, it, it's, it's over. It's over. And then on the next possession, when they, when, when Aaron Rodgers threw an interception, and then the Niners scored a touchdown right afterwards, before halftime, 27 zip, you're... You're done. 27 zip. I mean, for all that Aaron Rodgers is known for, for coming back, it was not going to happen against this Niners offense or defense. And your own defense can't even stop the front ass run as Jimmy Garoppolo only threw the ball eight times and had like six completions, right? So that was, that was pretty much the whole game. It just became the Packers just weren't able to finish off drives or even start getting drive started initially and it was just dissolved into or de or yeah devolved into uh just a beatdown but now i'm gonna go on to a bit more interesting exciting game which is the kansas city chiefs against the tennessee titans and this was a good one this was a good one all the way up till i would say midway to the fourth quarter midway in the fourth quarter where no team scored in the third quarter and then it was like on the, edge of, on the edge of your seat, and you're like, ooh, what can happen here? So, let's start off. Kansas City beat beat the Tennessee Titans 35-24. to And this was a good game until Kansas City went up by 11 points, 28-17, to uh, about halfway into the fourth quarter. And after that, you, were, you just knew it was over because Kansas City just had momentum going their way. And the way that Tennessee plays, you cannot come back from down 11 with a pure run game. You have to pass the ball. And I'm not sure if all, any of us really trust Tannehill to really bring a team like that back into it against such an explosive offense. And a Kansas State defense that had been doing pretty well throughout that whole day. But this was a pretty good game with Tennessee giving up, oh no, not giving up, going up by 10 points right off the bat. And they had a little help from Kansas City uh, Kansas City's defense, you know, jumping off sides or encroaching uh, for, I think it was two plays straight, where it was just, it was just bad. Uh, it was, ju they, they just jumped a snap at the wrong time. Um, and, and, and it helped set up the Titans for, uh, and I think on that drive, a touchdown, which obviously hurt. Um, but after watching the first drive for, for the Chiefs, I was a bit afraid that Andy Reid was going to, you know, once again, you know, mess it up in the uh, in the conference championship because those plays on their first drive were just bad. I don't know what they were doing. They were doing some sort of RPO rollout. I don't know, just straight up hike it and run. I, I don't know what they were doing, but Andy Reid, you know, took a step back, chilled out a bit from the first drive, and they started getting their thing going. And, I mean, Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes got them back in the football game. And and it got to 17-14, uh, and and then this is where it started shifting a bit. 
And this is the point where I come in, come in and say, Spag, no, Steve Spagnola. I was, I was talking about this guy last week when I was previewing this game. I thought that he was going to be the difference maker, and boy, was he. He limited, well, his defense, but coached by him, obviously, uh, limited Derrick Henry to 69 yards. <laughs> nice, but uh, I'm 18, chill. Uh, they limited Derrick Henry to 69 yards, and I mean, anytime you do that against a running back that good and that and who has been that dominant for that long, I mean, that's an automatic W. Win or lose, Lim limiting him to 69 yards was amazing. But how did he do that? And I'm gonna throw out a word there. I I can go through all the schemes and all that stuff. But that would involve me going through a lot of film and, you know, breaking it apart. But the main thing that I believe really got, or allowed Spagnola to go into the defense that, that they went to was trust. He stacked the box with his linebackers and defensive line against Derrick Henry to, you know, immediately hit him in the mouth. As soon as he got that ball, hit him in the mouth. But that left a lot of field open for his defensive backs and one safety who was way, way back to cover and, and make sure that nothing big happened. And things big happened in that first quarter where, you know, they had a touchdown and a field goal. Where they had some big plays down the middle from Ryan Tannehill to, a, to his uh, tight end as well as, uh, I think, A.J. Brown. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it again. Trust. Trust was the biggest thing. He trusted that his defensive backs and his safety, his one safety back there, were eventually going to be able to handle that play action or roll out or anything deep that would end up being, you know, probably one on one or one on two. A lot of it was just trust. Because you cannot say, say in that uh, defense where you're just relying on your, on your, uh, on, on the skill of your defensive backs and the ability of them to cover these players on weird routes down the middle where everything's open, basically just, you know, just them. It, it's tough, especially if they can get faked out and, you know, it's over. But again, trust. That, that That's the main reason why he was able to stick with the defense that he did. And eventually, you know, it, it started working. After Tennessee went uh, got to 17 points, it, it started clicking. They stopped Tennessee, and Tennessee only scored their their final touchdown at the very, very end of the game when it was practically over. And in, in, in addition to that, it came down to stopping Derrick Henry on first down to really put pressure on on uh, Ryan Tannehill to throw the ball, which he didn't really do much of until they were down, which brings me up to my next point, and, it, and, and I found it amazing for, for, the, for the Chiefs, is that their offense helped the defense by forcing more passing plays by getting that lead. Remember, running teams, they're more built to protect the lead than overcoming a deficit. So the Chiefs offense definitely helped defense by forcing more pass plays from that Tennessee Titans offense, especially when they started flying farther back, such as when it became an 11-point game midway through the fourth quarter, and, and the uh, Titans need, needed points like that. They needed it fast. And it just became the offense, you know, 
for, forced his passing place from from Tennessee, which played into the uh, Chiefs' hand as uh, being one of the best passing defenses in the whole league, which led to another stop and another opportunity for Patrick Mahomes and company to put up more points, and the cycle continues on. And I just found it amazing. It was a great job by Kansas City, but Tennessee has a lot too, to be hopeful for. They have Mike Rabel, who has proven himself so far to be a very, very capable coach, and this was by far one of the best nine and seven years. And, you know, hopefully they can find a quarterback, although Ryan, Ryan Tannehill did do a great job, but the blueprint for for stopping the Titans are there, or is there. Um, hopefully they find a more dynamic quarterback who's not Marcus Mariota or Ryan Tannehill to sign into that offense and, you know, really make them multidimensional. But I just want to say I'm really happy that the Chiefs finally got to, finally got to the Super Bowl with Andy Reid there. And I believe that while Mahomes and the offense led by Andy Reid were tremendous throughout this playoffs and still are tremendous and should be tremendous going into the Super Bowl, a good amount of credit has to go to Steve Spagnola. And here's Tyron Matthew talking about Steve Spagnola with him right next to him. This guy's special. God brought us together. I'm sure glad he did, right? Hey, man, he, sure he, glad he, did. he challenged me, you know, each and every week. You know, even when I come off a big game, um, he's always trying to get me better. And um, that's what I respect the most about him. You know, uh, you know, uh, he's a man of God. He's a man of great faith. And, you know, uh, he believes in me. You know, and uh, I think anytime you can have a coach believe in you, I think it automatically heightens your play, makes you want to go out there, be confident, and bring the rest of the guys with you. Easy believing a guy like this, <laughs> I can tell you that right now. That's a guy who has trust in his players. Like I said, keyword trust. That's a guy who had Steve Spagnuolo has trust in his players, and his players also have trust in him. And hopefully, he helps the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. Okay, now I'm going to talk about um, the one hire in the NFL that, or I guess it's a triplet of hires that I found. Stunning, but also I was like, initially I was just thinking about it, and I was like, I I don't know how it's gonna pan out, how it's gonna work out, and that is the Panthers hires. They hired new head coaches, new well, a new head coach, a new offensive coach, and a new defensive coach. So let's jump right into it. The Carolina Panthers hired Matt Rule, Joe Brady, and now Phil Snow as. Head coach, offensive coach, and defensive. Well, head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, respectively. So, Matt Rule, head coach, Joe Brady, uh, offensive coordinator, <laughs> voice crack, uh, Phil Snow as defensive coordinator. Now, just a little background Matt Rule and Phil Snow um, both were at Baylor and helped turn it into a competitive program where, where you know, they were somewhat in the hunt for, for the playoffs. I never really thought that they were going to make it, but they were in the hunt and were very, very competitive and, you know, almost beat Oklahoma, but choked a big lead. And Joe Brady, you know, he helped the, he helped LSU and Joe Burrow win the NCAA College Football Championship. Um, but there's only so much I can say about whether these coaches are going to be, uh, are going to turn out to be fantastic or, you know, are actually good going into uh, the Panther, Panthers organization. 
but I can say the the effect it'll have on the organization, players, and the future of the Panthers. Like what it means. First of all, I want to say all these guys are coming out of college, but they have at least one year of NFL experience. Joe Brady, for example, you know he he was there for the Saints for I think a couple, I think two years. Yeah, two years, I think. Um, but all these all these guys have at least one year of college experience. However, those result in quick exits that brought them back to the collegiate level, and. If I'm an and if I'm an NFL player who's been in the league for quite some time, especially if I'm a veteran, and I'm on that Carolina uh, Carolina Panthers roster, I'm probably like, dude, come on, what have you done? Yeah, you probably brought Baylor, you know, to you know recognition on the national spectrum, and yeah, Joe Brady, you know, you you did a good job with LSU, but I think I know. A bit more than you. And I think that leads to a lack of respect or not so much respect, but more of a lack of inspiration. A lack of them being able to call out the best in those players. So I think instead of lack of respect, I think it's more of lack of inspiration. I think that's the biggest thing, lack of inspiration. And I think that either this year or next year, a lot of players will start making their way out of Carolina, especially veteran players. A lot of them are going to start making their way out of Carolina, leaving space for a lot younger players. And, it, and I think that's the direction that this organization is going into uh, with those hires, which is just starting over with Christian McCaffrey, which I hope works out, and that new coaching regime. And the, and the reason why I say uh, I hope it works out, I'm, I'm going to get into that a bit later. Um, but that brings me to Cam Newton. I believe that even when Kyle Allen was going crazy, the, that the plan under Ron Rivera was to stick with Cam Newton because that's your superstar guy. I, I said, I don't care if Kyle Allen, you know, freaking wins the whole rest of the season out, if he wins, you know, six, seven, eight games in a row. I don't care if he's throwing 50 touchdowns for the whole season. I don't care. If he wants to win the Super Bowl, awesome. Maybe I'll start considering. But I don't care what he does because Cam Newton is my guy. And and I thought that was the idea under Ron Rivera that no matter what Kyle Allen does, Cam Newton is my guy. But that was shaken up when Ron Rivera was fired and Matt Rule stepped in as the new head coach. And now it's starting to change even more for me with these other two hires, uh, bringing in a new young coaching regime. Now with those new hires, and especially with Matt Rule stepping in, I'm leaning more to the idea that they're going to move on from Cam Newton and draft a quarterback and play Kyle Allen and, and just let that young quarterback develop behind Kyle Allen. That's more of what I'm thinking is going to go on. And that just has to do with a new regime, not not with Cam Newton being a bad player at all. I, I, I still think he's really, really good. But I think that that's just where the Panthers organization is just going. And I don't love it because I, I really wanted them to hang on to Cam Newton which I think would have been done with Ron Rivera. And 
And I think that in doing so, in trying to bring in a new regime and start out fresh, the hope is, yeah, you're, you're going to build around Christian McCaffrey. But at the same time, I think that you're that they're going to end up wasting his best years, which are right now. I think that's what's going to end up happening. And if they really do cut Cam Newton, what, what I said about players leaving, oh yeah, they're definitely going to start leaving. And it can be veterans. It, it can be literally anyone that starts leaving. Because I'm pretty sure players in the locker room have a severe respect and loyalty towards Cam Newton that if, if the Panthers wrong them, they're out of there. Because it's a, it's, a, it's showing a lack of respect towards Cam Newton. And I, that, that's, that's what I'm thinking when, when I see this. And I, I really hope it works out. But I think that these hires, Matt Rule, Joe Brady, and Phil Snow, are great individual ones. Great individually where you're like, you know what? On, on another team, you know, maybe that defense sucks. You know, bring in Phil Snow, and that's about it. Or if that offense is, you know, not doing so hot. Bring in Joe Brady as an offense coordinator. Or even Matt Rule as an offense coordinator. Or, or doing, I, I don't remember which one um, he's, he specializes in. But bringing them in individually, I think, would have been fine for me. But collectively, as a young group, together new to this whole thing, although they do have one year of experience under their belt, but new to being at the very, very top, I just do not see it working out really, really well especially with Christian McCaffrey there and them and them potentially wasting his talent and and they're going to end up starting from scratch which means drafting another quarterback who they will hope turns out to be a, a Cam Newton or Joe Burrow but that could be for a very very long time and it's just going to take a long time for them to start rebuilding a roster that, you know, not too long ago went to the Super Bowl. And, is, and I believe under Cam Newton can get back there. Maybe not this upcoming year, but a couple of years from now could definitely get back there. But I think that they're going to end up wasting Christian McCaffrey's talent and in his superstardom while rebuilding the rest of the roster. And I think that in addition to that, they're probably gonna let Cam Newton, or cut, yeah, probably cut Cam Newton, which will result in several players just leaving the organization. Okay, now I'm gonna switch gears, switch leagues from the NFL to the NBA, and now I'm gonna talk about the Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks are 10 and 34 as I'm recording this on Tuesday night. And they're sitting at the bottom of the Eastern Conference, despite having a young, exciting group led by Trey Young. Part of the problem is that their defense is awful. It's, I think, the third worst in points per game given up in the whole league. And, 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 and also part of the problem, granted, is that Trey Young was out for a couple games, but that doesn't really change their their record being this atrocious. But I want to talk about not so much how bad they are or what they're doing wrong, but I want to talk about them being in trade rumors, especially trade rumors circulating Andre Drummond. I think it is a really, emphasis on really, really bad idea 
Andre Drummond won't do much for, for that team and will kill their salary cap. It's pretty simple. But even generally, for any trade that, that they're thinking about doing, you have a young group and potentially a top five pick for the draft this year. Your leader is 21 years old and Trey Young. Give it time. All, all you can do for now is give these guys, your young players, the tools to improve their game and, and along with veteran mentorship. That's all you can give them. And that's the best thing that you can do for them right now. Just let them grow on their own with their, uh, you know, with their trainer and, and just give them a veteran presence who right now is Vince Carter to, you know, walk them through it and get them through the league. Just let them develop naturally. Don't try to force it on them to be some megastar right off the bat, especially Trey Young. And I know it's really, really tempting to look at Luka Doncic and look what he's doing there in the playoffs and it's the Western Conference. And, oh, my God, he has a winning record, too. And he has Kristaps Porzingis, who they traded for. And you're thinking, like, oh, you know what? If we get Andre Drummond, we'll be right there in the Eastern Conference, which is a bit easier. But don't fall into that. Different things work for different people and teams. Give it time. This, if you just give it time, let it develop. So the Atlanta Hawks will be just fine. If you, if you try to rush it, oh, it's, it's going to be nasty. The worst thing for the Hawks is to trade away significant young players, young pieces, for temporary success and what could be an Andre Drummond or some other uh, player who is quite expensive. Um, in trying to get to the playoffs, trying to get that playoff experience, which is good, is good. But at the same time, it's temporary success that you get into the playoffs and then you get bounced out. That's what the Pistons had for quite some time, even though they brought in Blake Griffin. They have success for the regular season. They get 42 and 40, get into the playoffs, and get swept. And eventually after time, your fans are like, no. We see the writing on the walls. No. We don't like it. Dynasties aren't built through drafting one guy, hoping he's a superstar, and then the next year bringing in uh, via trade, some other guy. No. The Mavericks are trying to do that. That's not going to be a dynasty. That's not. I love Doncic. I love Kristaps. That's not going to be a dynasty until they let those guys develop and mature. But those are young guys. Not Andre Drummond, who's been on the older end. No. Dynasties are built through the draft and developing them for long-term success. Look at the Warriors. Go through the draft, and end up after winning a championship, losing the, the next one, bringing in KD, won the next two. Spilled through the draft with Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry, Draymond Green. Those three guys. It takes a lot of patience to build a really, really good team. The Spurs, prime example, built through the draft. Parker, Ginobili, Tim Duncan, Kawhi Leonard, built through the draft. So I, I think what the Hawks need to do is just, you know, just take it slow. Breathe. Just take a breath. And don't do a trade because that will only be temporary success. 
rather than the long-term success that your organization can have if you just have patience. Now for the last topic of the day is the NBA All-Star voting. And this one's a bit, you know, lighter. It's not some big deal, but I just wanted to talk about it a bit and, you know, throw out a, a, a suggestion. Okay. All-Star voting is fun. Fans get to vote for their team's players, their favorite player, but they're supposed to do it somewhat seriously. There is no way that Alex I don't care if it's this universe or an alternate alternate one. There's no way that Alex Caruso or Taco Fall or this season Stephen Curry, who hasn't played much, should be voted at all in the voting process. And in doing that, you take away votes from other players, from Stephen Curry and Alex Caruso. You take away votes from Damian Lillard, Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook's actually below, I believe, Alex Caruso. If, if you find those votes, you know, he, he he get to, you know, one of the starters. Even Taco Fall, you know, maybe Jason Tatum, you know, makes a jump. But, of course, the All-Star game isn't that serious. But some players care about where they are placed among the ranks. Of, of, of how much the fans like them. But not so much about that, but how much the fans recognize them. That's a key thing. Recognition. Players love recognition. And by taking away these votes from these really, really good players and giving them to players that are either inactive or bench or bench pieces primarily, they come off the bench, play a couple minutes, you're showing a lack of recognition for other top players in the league. So here's what I propose. And again, this is, this is very, very light. This is just a nice ending to a podcast, maybe the media should choose the top 20 to 30 players in, in each conference, and then the fans vote from that selection. It's just so that nothing that shouldn't happen, happens. I mean, we had a, I would say a scare, but it's like air quotes around it because it's, you know, it's not that serious. I was, I was up at Chile a couple of years back, you know, almost making the All-Star game. So, I mean, things like that were just like, Really? Really? I mean, come on. You're better than that. So, that, that's my proposition. It's not super serious, but it's just, you know... It, it's supposed to be fun to vote for, you know, great players. And, you know, make some match and, you know, share, you know, with your friend. Like, oh, you know, I, I think this player should get in. And it's just fun. But by making it, you know... Um, like really silly is just not the way to go, and it deters from you know really good players getting the recognition that they deserve. So, luckily, stuff like this isn't that big of a deal, and you know it's probably it's probably not gonna get addressed, but it's not that big of a deal. Um, and players don't even make it to the game, like Alex Russo and Taco Fall, Stephen Curry are not going to be in the game. Zaza Pachulia did not make it into the game, but it's about, like I said, fans recognizing the best players in the game. Alright, that will be it for the G-Truth. We had six topics today, which I'm very proud of. Um, should be interesting. Uh, I think I'm going to do 
I, I, I kind of like this format. Um, with a team or two to talk about, and then maybe I'm going to start moving on to some other coaching hires uh, throughout the NFL. And we'll see where it goes. we got Super Bowl weekend uh, coming up in two weeks, which is going to be really, really good between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers in Miami. That's going to be really, really fun. But in the meantime, 